Right, good morning everybody, and a very happy Christmas to you all. Um, do please keep the Bible open, as always, at the passage Michael has just read for us. You will find an outline in the bulletin uh, that uh, you received when you arrived. And just because it's Christmas doesn't mean you're let off from the questions, so you've got a yellow question sheet, and you can take that away and think about those questions after whatever it is you're having for lunch today. But first of all, let's ask the Lord to help us understand this uh, very important letter. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of Christmas, Jesus came into the world and revealed things to us that we could not possibly know in any other way. And without it, we would be floundering around in the dark. But we thank you that Jesus has come and we thank you that we have a true and reliable word in Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us this morning. Make your word plain to our hearts and send us away renewed, refreshed and strengthened in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation 3, 7 to 13, page 878. Christmas is is, um, a time of surprises, I suppose, and uh, one of the pleasant surprises for me this year has been to discover that this actually is rather an appropriate text for Christmas morning. I have to admit, I wasn't entirely expecting that when I uh, sat down to do my prep this week, because we're working through Uh, this part of the book of Revelation, and you can't always guarantee that the next passage you come to is necessarily going to be appropriate for the particular Sunday that you're preaching on. But uh, this morning was a nice surprise. Just think about the Christmas story with me for a moment. Because the Gospels tell us that when Jesus entered our world, uh, he was not born in an important city. He was not born into a powerful family. Uh, His birth was not uh, front-page news. The first people to welcome Jesus into the world were shepherds, not superstars. And the people that Jesus chose to continue his mission after his death were unschooled, ordinary men. And I suppose if you and I were asked to spread the most important news ever to, give, ever to be given to humanity, I don't suppose we would have done it like this. But God did. And we find exactly the same principle in the passage Michael has just read for us. The risen Christ is writing to his church in Philadelphia. Uh, that's Philadelphia in Turkey, not North America. And uh, just look at how he describes that church in the middle of verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now here it is. I know that you have little strength. In other words, this was a very small church. Um, It was a tiny minority of believers. Very unimpressive. Uh, Last week we were looking, weren't we, at the church in Sardis and you'll remember they had a terrific reputation. Um, On the outside it looked really good. There were serious problems beneath the surface but the people couldn't see them. 
Uh, everybody in Sardis was seriously impressed. But this morning we have the opposite. Uh, the church at Philadelphia had no reputation to speak of. Uh, it was unimpressive in, in numbers and in resources. Uh, most people didn't even know it was there. And I guess that's really like the vast majority of churches in the world today. Uh, it was a little church of little strength and no doubt of little confidence. Now we shouldn't actually be surprised about that because um, that's what the Apostle Paul said churches were going to be like down the ages. Do you remember the three things that he said about them? He said there would not be many wise people in Christian congregations, not many influential and not many noble. And I think that has been generally true of the Church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. As the world sees us, we are a pretty unimpressive bunch. But Jesus sees it all so very differently. And what we've been finding in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is that Jesus knows all his churches throughout the world perfectly. And although that knowledge was rather a rude awakening for the church at Sardis, it is actually very encouraging indeed for this tiny group of Christians at the church in Philadelphia. They might be small, but Jesus sees three things that give him the greatest pleasure. What are they? Well, firstly, in verse 8b, Jesus says, you have kept my word. That means they've kept the gospel, because in the New Testament, the word is always the gospel. And this little church has kept the gospel at the centre of their ministry. You know, it's surprising how very easy it is not to do that. A few years ago, a friend of ours was called to pastor a dying church in a very smart suburb in London. And uh, when he first arrived, the church council took him on one side and told him in no uncertain terms that he was not to preach for more than 12 minutes on Sunday morning. In other words, that was a church that had not kept the gospel at the centre of its ministry. And uh, our friend has discovered that once a church does that, it's actually very difficult to bring it back. But the church at Philadelphia wasn't like that. They had kept God's word. The second thing that pleases Jesus is in the very next phrase where Jesus says, You have not denied my name. Now, like all the other churches in Asia Minor, they were under intense pressure to do that. Uh, we've touched on this before, but um, for those of you who are new to this, in the first century it was imperial policy for everybody in the empire to declare in public, Caesar is Lord. That was the law. Uh, Christians couldn't do it. And clearly the church at Philadelphia had stood firm for Jesus. It's interesting in this letter that the greatest pressure on the church was actually coming from the Jews, who Jesus describes here as a synagogue of Satan. Rather dramatic phrase. 
By the way, I think that phrase is teaching us something rather important. Uh, It's teaching us about where Satan looks to exercise his influence. It's rather surprising. Because Satan wants to be in religious communities that hate and persecute the Church of Jesus Christ. That's where Satan is busiest. And of course we know, don't we, from Open Doors and ministries like it, that there are many religious communities around the world doing precisely that today. Well, in Philadelphia, Satan was using the Jewish synagogue to attack the church. How did that happen? Well, a few years before, the the Jews had actually done a deal with the Romans, whereby in return for paying a tax to the Temple of Jupiter in Rome... Uh, the Jews were let off the hook. They were not actually required to declare publicly, Caesar is Lord. But you see, because many of the early Christians were Jews, the Jews knew where to find the Christian churches. They knew where the churches would meet, uh, they knew who was involved, and they knew who was refusing to say, Caesar is Lord. So the synagogue, you see, could be a very real enemy. But in spite of that, Jesus says to this little church, you have not denied my name. And then the third thing that pleases Jesus is in verse 10, where he praises these Christians because you have kept my command to endure patiently. And I think the implication there is that there might have been all kinds of reasons to give up Christianity and go back to the old life. But instead of doing that, they've persevered in their faith. They've kept on meeting together. They've kept on reading their Bibles. They've kept on praying and encouraging one another as best they can. So there are three things that the risen Christ was looking for then and which he's still looking for today. Churches that keep the gospel, churches that do not deny his name, and churches that endure patiently through tough times. Jesus loves churches like that. We know he loves them because of what he says at the end of verse 9. Can you see, he says that I'll make them, that is your enemies, come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Really? A tiny church like that? Not the mega church down the road? A church that hardly anybody knows about? Surely not. But Jesus says a day is coming when even your enemies will acknowledge that I have loved you. And that's the reality, you see. But what sustains little churches like this one at Philadelphia and like us this morning? Well, notice the word Jesus gives in verse 11. Jesus says, hold on to what you have. In other words, what he's saying is keep going. 
And uh, picking up on that phrase, I want to draw your attention to three specific words of encouragement that Jesus gives to small churches in this letter. Here's the first one. Keep going because your salvation is secure. Now, a moment ago, I said that uh, much of the pressure on this tiny church was coming from, from the Jews. It was coming from the synagogue of Satan. And that, you see, is because they thought they were God's people and nobody else had a look in. So it's very interesting, I think, to notice that this letter is full of Jewish symbols. Just notice them with me. Um, There's the key of David in verse 7. Obviously, there is the synagogue in verse 9. There is the temple in verse 12. And uh, Jerusalem which also was crucial for the Jew in verse 12. Now, those things were absolutely foundational to Jewish faith and practice. And you see, what Jesus does in these letters is he he picks up these symbols and says, no, no, these things don't actually belong to the Jewish synagogue because that's controlled by Satan. They belong to you, the church. And I think that's a real encouragement. How do we get there? We'll look at it very quickly. First of all, the key of David in verse 7. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now that is a direct quotation from Isaiah 22.22. Easy to remember, you can look it up later. But that passage, you see, talks about God giving the key of David to a man called Eliakim. And the significance of that was that Eliakim was given authority to determine who was a real Jew and who was not. And here Jesus is saying, that key has been given to me. I open the door of faith and I also shut the door of faith. The point is, you see, You can't actually be a believer unless Jesus opens the door. I'm very grateful that in 1989 God did that for me. Um, I've told most of you the story before that a friend in the office went out of his way to take me along to a lunchtime meeting for businessmen where I heard the gospel. I've no doubt I'd heard it before but on that day God opened the door of faith for me to believe. And the reason I mention it is that although my circumstances and the people closest to me were dead against it, once God had opened the door, no one and nothing could shut it, no matter how they tried. Now that's what's happened in Philadelphia. The key of David had unlocked the door of faith to this little group of believers under pressure. No one could shut it. Then secondly, in verse 9, Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. When I first read that, 
I thought Jesus was talking about what's going to happen at the end of human history. When all men will acknowledge Christ and his church. But I think of, because of something we're going to come to in a minute, that what Jesus is actually saying is that many of the Jews in Philadelphia are going to get converted and will acknowledge that the Christians in Philadelphia are actually the true people of God. Now that is a miracle, isn't it? Because it means that God has not forsaken his people. He's still bringing Jews to himself. And when that happened, well, these Jews would have to admit, yes, you really are God's people. And we never knew it. And then thirdly, in verse 12, Jesus says to these Christians, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now remember that this this tiny church looked very fragile indeed. Uh, No doubt many people were thinking it might topple over at any moment for any number of different reasons. Actually, incidentally, one of the reasons was that uh, Philadelphia was at the epicentre of a zone famous for earthquakes and uh, the buildings in Philadelphia had to be rebuilt at regular intervals. So that's one reason. But you see, a pillar is stable and secure, isn't it? It can't be moved. And in those days, uh, people would sometimes dedicate a pillar to someone special, uh, just as you and I might dedicate a plaque or or maybe a bench uh, to somebody that we've loved. And uh, in the middle of verse 12, just notice this. Jesus says, I'm going to write three names on this pillar. The name of my God, the name of my city, that is to say the New Jerusalem, and best of all, I'm going to write on my own new name, that is to say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's just a very memorable way of saying to these Christians, your future is absolutely secure. You belong to me. By the way, please remember that much of the language in Revelation is symbolic, uh, because of course much later in the book we're told there's going to be no temple in the world to come. So, friends, it does not mean that uh, in heaven there's going to be a religious building supported by pillars with your names on them. them. It doesn't mean that. No, it's simply saying that just as a pillar is indispensable to the structure of a physical temple because the temple would fall down without it, so you and I are going to be indispensable in the new creation. That's a rather lovely image, isn't it? Were you thinking of that this morning? It's a word of reassurance. I I think it must have been marvellous for that small congregation in Philadelphia to hear these words from the risen Jesus when this letter was read out in church on Sunday morning. Why does Jesus emphasise this point about the security of their salvation? Well, let's remember that the the New Testament often says that God not only wants us to be saved, 
but to have a deep personal assurance of that salvation. And the reason is quite simple, because you see, it's only when I know that my position with God is secure that I'm going to reach out a helping hand to somebody else. Isn't that right? So that's the first word of encouragement that Jesus has for this rather weak-looking church. Keep going. Your salvation is secure. Secondly, keep going because your service is significant. Now here we're looking at the first half of verse 8. Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, um, that's the same language that we just read in verse 7, and, and for that reason, some writers say that Jesus is still talking about the door of salvation. But um, John Stott and a number of others say that here Jesus is actually going a step further and that this is in fact about our outreach and our ministry. That's what he's talking about. And I think that uh, that must be right because of the way this phrase is used so often in the rest of the New Testament. So keep one finger in Revelation for a moment and turn with me to Acts 14 on page 780. Acts 14, verse 27, page 780. And uh, what we have here is is Paul and uh, very appropriately Barnabas Uh, returning to Antioch in Syria to give a a report back on one of their missionary journeys. Acts 14, verse 27. Are we all there? Can we see it? On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now turn on quickly to 1 Corinthians 16, 8, page 814. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. And Paul here is updating his friends in Corinth on his travel plans. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. That's interesting, isn't it? You see, God has opened a door for effective ministry for the Apostle Paul. There are plenty of people who want to shut it but of course they can't. There are lots of other examples but come back then to Revelation 3. What door had God opened for this tiny, unimpressive church in Philadelphia? We can't be absolutely sure. Uh, Some of the experts say that Philadelphia was in an ideal location to send missionaries out to evangelise the unreached tribes east of them in Turkey. I'm not sure about that. I mean, if they were small, did they really have the resources to sustain a missionary campaign like that? I doubt it. More likely, God had opened the door for evangelism amongst the Jews in the city. 
And I like that because it explains verse 9, doesn't it? And why so many of them from the synagogue were going to become Christians. So, can you see the point? The ministry of this tiny, unimpressive church really was going to be very significant. I think before we move on, it is just worth pausing for a moment to think about this business of God opening and closing doors. Um, And the reason I say that is because we live in a can-do culture and we Christians like to think that as long as we've got the right strategy and the right training, uh, that we can open doors for ministry and uh, that the ministry that is really all about what we do But the message of this letter is that's not quite right. Because there are doors that simply can't be opened, aren't there? In 1951, give a famous example, God shut the door for Christian work in China. Chairman Mao booted out all the foreign missionaries. Uh, No new missionaries were allowed in. There was nothing that the churches in the West could do about that for a whole generation. And it was only many, many years later that it became clear that God did that because he wanted the church in China to be established on authentic Chinese foundations rather than looking like the Anglican church in the West. And the results were breathtaking. So when God shut the door in 1951, there were some tens of thousands of Christians in China. But today according to the Joshua Project, there are over a hundred million evangelical Christians in China. It's actually one of the greatest miracles in the history of the church. But you see, the point is that when God shuts the door, there's absolutely no point in you and I trying to open it. In the Gospels, whenever Jesus came to a door that was shut... He moved on. When the Apostle Paul came to a door that was shut, he didn't sort of bash his head against it. He moved on. And that, you see, is the pattern for you and me. Our job is to look for the doors God has opened and not get upset and frustrated about the doors that he has shut. So think for a moment um, of the students at Bible College that are so much a part of our church family here. We didn't plan it. Uh, But seven years ago, God brought just one man, uh, a PhD student from Tanzania, uh, to St Barnabas. Um, Alfred was already a senior churchman, and as I look back, I realise we needed him rather more than he needed us. But you see, what started with one student has now grown to include more than a dozen, serving in six different African countries. And of course our fellowship on Sundays, as you know, is much richer for it. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because God is doing wonderful things through a number of them who've graduated and gone home to serve in churches or other ministries. And so just this week, for example, we know, don't we, that our brother Elijah 
was speaking to around 400 young adults in Kenya. Now you see, all of that is one example of God opening a door for us. Humanly speaking, it was really unlikely. And of course, we had to play our part. But God did it. God opened the door. And I think that one of the great encouragements of this text for us is that a church of little strength really can trust God to open doors of opportunity. And our job is to pray that God will open those doors and that when he does, he'll give us the courage to seize those opportunities with both hands. And then in terms of our own personal witness, surely the message of this text is that we are to look for opportunities to share our faith with people who actually want to hear rather than bashing away endlessly with people who don't really want to listen. Isn't that right? Somebody nod. Encourage me. Thank you. You see, if God hasn't opened the door, you and I are not going to be able to. But if he does open the door, well, people really will get converted. So the risen Christ is saying to us this morning, keep going because your salvation is secure. Your service is significant. And thirdly, keep going because your safety is certain. It sounds like a similar point to the first one, but it's slightly different. Verse 10. Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Jesus is saying that at a time known only to him, a great trial is going to come on the whole world, but the Christians in this little church are going to be protected from it. Now, if you're wide awake, you'll know that this is a bit of a puzzle. Because we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that Christians are not exempt from hardships and trials, don't we? The Apostle Peter says in his first letter that God wills trials into the lives of Christians. Why? So that our faith will be proved genuine and will last the distance. And the Lord Jesus himself, the night before he died, said, in this world you will have trouble. Now, of course, the prosperity gospel preacher has no idea what to do with that, does he? Because he says the opposite. Uh, He says the true Christian will never suffer trials, and if you do, you're not the real thing. But, of course, the New Testament never says that. The New Testament says that for the Christian, suffering is unavoidable. Now, if that is true, how how are you and I to understand verse 10? Very important verse. Because at first sight, it seems to contradict that, doesn't it? The key is the phrase right at the very end of the verse. That little phrase, those who live on the earth. 
That actually is a technical phrase in the book of Revelation. It appears ten times in the book and in each case it is referring to non-Christians, not believers. So verse 10 is saying that the trials from which the church will be spared are the judgments that are coming on the non-Christian world for its rebellion against Jesus. And uh, later on in the book, we're told that God's judgment is being held back until all the redeemed are clearly sealed on their foreheads. Some of you will know that passage. In other words, real believers are going to be marked out as different, so when the judgment falls, they will be spared. So please get the balance absolutely clear in your mind. Christians are not going to be spared hardships in this life. You know that. Most of the people in this church family have been through all kinds of hardships. This year, some of you are still going through them. But you will be spared the trials that are coming on the non-Christian world. Especially the greatest trial of all, the wrath of God against sin. I'm very grateful uh, that I am spared from the hideous ordeal of visiting the shopping malls at Christmas. I don't like shopping and I'm very blessed that I don't have to go and that the ladies in our house do it for me. But on the very rare occasions when I do go to a shopping mall at a busy time of year, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but I am struck by a sense that the vast majority of people have absolutely no awareness of the future. Do you you share that? They aren't actually thinking beyond the next purchase, the next party, or the next holiday. The Bible says there will be a day of judgment and we need to be prepared for it. Yet interestingly, the Lord Jesus himself says most people won't bother. Do you remember he said in the days of Noah that people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. They had no awareness, did they, of the flood that was coming. Noah warned them about it. He preached endlessly for quite a long time apparently. But they didn't listen, they didn't prepare, and they perished. The Bible says it will be exactly the same for those who turn their backs on Jesus. The day of judgment will come, and they will be hopelessly unprepared. The book of Revelation, much later, says that that experience will be so intense, so extreme that those people will actually call rocks to fall on them so that they won't actually have to see the face of God or face the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of the baby. But everybody who trusts in Jesus will be kept safe because they've held on to Jesus, the one who, according to Revelation 1.6, loves us and has freed us from our sins with his blood. And so you see, if the punishment has already fallen on Jesus, those who are in him have got nothing to fear, have they? 
their safety is certain. And so, my friend, what about you? When the hour of trial comes, will you be ready? Are you prepared? Are you safe and secure in Christ? Or will you be calling for rocks to fall on you to protect you from the face of God and the wrath of Jesus? If you're not sure about that, I can't actually think of a better time than Christmas morning for you to get right with God by putting your trust in Jesus. Ask God to open the door of faith very specially for you. And if you do, then the three words of encouragement in this letter will be immediately true for you. Your salvation will be secure. Absolutely nothing will be able to shake you out of God's family. Your service will be significant meaning that everything you do for God in this life will have eternal consequences in the life of the world to come. That's a great thought, isn't it? And on the day of judgment, your safety will be certain. You have nothing to fear. Now surely those things are infinitely more precious, aren't they, than the glorious presence waiting for you under the tree at home. Isn't that right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is an amazing thing to be reminded that the baby born in Bethlehem has conquered all our enemies and that you are ruling today in heaven that every church around the world is known by you and is being kept by you. We pray this morning for tiny churches in tough places, especially those churches led by men that we know and care for, Innocent in Malawi, Jimmy in Uganda, and all the students who've gone from us to serve in small churches of little strength. We ask that as they read the the scriptures that you would give these words of encouragement to them as you've given them to us about their salvation, that it is absolutely secure, about their service, that you will open doors of opportunity and about their personal safety when the hour of trial comes on the earth. We pray it for them, we pray it for ourselves, and we pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen.